We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Thanks for the tweets. Thanks for the retweets. Well, thanks for everything. Now, on to my guest for today, Richard White. Founder and CEO of two SaaS companies, Fathom and UserVoice. An engineer who develops tools to scratch an itch, Richard founded Fathom to solve a problem he was facing, how to take good notes on Zoom calls. As he was frequently talking to customers on Zoom, he wanted a better way to capture those insights while in conversation. Fathom uses a combination of tools to address this problem, which became a top-rated app on the Zoom app marketplace. Richard's experience provides insight into the process of founding a startup and how doing it the second time around can be a bit easier. Richard says while his first endeavor was a journey in just figuring out what he was doing, with his second one, he came up with a better idea of what to expect. While his first company was mostly bootstrap, Fathom has had funding from the start, which Richard acknowledged was essential for this particular product. He also had people he could tap on to develop the product and start selling it. Another advantage of being a serial entrepreneur. Richard is a strong believer in the power of good customer service and of soliciting customer feedback in order to make the best product possible. Indeed, his, the company UserVoice is a tool that enables companies to get that exact kind of feedback. In our conversation, Richard explains the way he collects the feedback and puts it to use to make better products and customer experiences. Now, let's get better together. Richard White, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, thanks for being on. I know it's the summer. 
you've been telling me a little bit, you used to be a nomadic traveler. Now you can sort of see the tea leaves of everyone wants to travel now. <laughs> it's like this crush of got to get out of the house, you know? So uh, I know you've kind of calmed down a little bit on that, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But we also are going to talk about you being the founder of Fathom, which is a SaaS tool that allows you to never take notes again in Zoom, which for me, who is literally in Zoom pretty much every day, um, that's pretty cool. Looks like you know you were number one on Product Hunt. You know, got some great reviews. Your startup, all the coolness. But uh, before we get into all that, like I always like to say, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? Uh, gosh, I mean, it's a, it's long and winding journey. I guess the short answer would be for Fathom specifically, it's a common story that I've had. I think everything I've worked on in my career has generally been solving a problem that I had, uh, personally. And so, you know, I previously started another company called user voice and near the tail end of that, I was doing sounds like what you do, right? Which is a lot of zoom calls. Uh, I think I did 200 or so zoom calls with customers in the first like six weeks of 2020. Wow. And that's a lot. And I learned, you know, you do one thing a lot. You really, every little kind of sharp edge to that process, you become painfully aware of. And I became painfully aware of how much, how bad I am at talking and typing at the same time. Right. And so, uh, and I also learned that like, it's a stressful, I, I, I remember we were doing research for a different product. And I just remember like, wow, the real pain point I have is like talking to these folks, hurriedly typing out notes after the call, like trying to clean those up notes up into something that's, like intelligible, right? Because when I'm taking notes on a call, I'm just kind of leaving mnemonics to remind myself of what to say. And what was kind of depressing about that process is I, you know, I think if you look at my notes, you'd say like, oh, Rich is a decent note taker. And I come back two weeks later and be like, I don't remember which call this was or what exactly happened here. And more importantly, when I go to share with my team, hey, here's what I've learned from these 200 calls, you know, I throw out a few bullet points and then really fall flat. Right. And I noticed there's this huge gap in the experience and like insight that I would get firsthand on the call versus this kind of like game of telephone where I just give you, here's a few bullet points. Right. Um, and so that's kind of kicked us off on this, you know, now it's about, we're about two years later. Right. So it was a two year journey uh, to building, to building Fathom. And so, yeah, I think Scratchy My Own Itch has just always been, I think, a, a, an easy way to, you know, build products that like, if you know you're solving the problem for yourself, it gives you a lot of high conviction that like you're solving for other people too. Yeah. Especially these kind of repetitive tasks that automation can help. Yep. You know, that's what I've always found. It's super interesting because usually, you know, someone, if someone's doing something manually, okay, they have to do it. There's no other alternative. It's all, they're almost resigned to the fact that this can't be any better. But I like your approach. I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm always like, well, if I have this problem, someone else must have this problem. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a unique snowflake. I mean, I'm a snowflake, right? <laughs> or whatever. Right. But, you know, like I can't be unique in the world. So cool. And um, how's it going with Fathom? I mean, what's the, what's the uptick been like? That's going quite well. Um, you know, we're the number one app on this new Zoom app marketplace. You mentioned some of we were, I think, you know, we won product of the day last December. We actually were the number two product on product hunt for AI in all of 2021. Uh, and yeah, I think we, it, it's kind of fun doing, this is really kind of like my second startup, right? Second funded startup. And uh, I really describe it as like playing an old video game again, right? Like you, 
So you're kind of speed running it, right? Where you're like, you know, the first time you're playing it, you're kind of dropped into Minecraft and you didn't know what to do. And so you spent a lot of time walking around before you realize you got to punch the tree to get some wood. And this time it's like, you dropped me in. I'm like, okay, I know which cave to go into, which castle to, to raid, you know, to get the good shield and good sword. And, and it's just, you know, it's a, been a real joy um, to kind of run it back, if you will. What, what's been those things that you think were like, you're glad you did it a first time so that you sort of didn't make the same mistakes. What, what were some of those? Oh gosh. I mean, I think, you know, my previous company user voice ran for like 10 years. And so, and, and I think throughout the lifespan of that company, we did everything. We were bottom up premium. We were top down sales. Uh, I think at any given point, I probably, you know, my background is engineering and then product design, but I ran the sales team for a while. I ran the marketing team for a while. I ran the, like, so I've, you know, it was almost like that, that startup gave me kind of a, almost like a, you know, better than business school or finishing school and like seeing all things, you know, SaaS entrepreneurship. Uh, so, you know, and I, I think you kind of work backwards from like, okay, what did we really struggle with last time? What we want to make sure we nail first and foremost, you know, one of those is distribution, right? So we first and foremost is this time around, we're like, okay, how, like, do we have a go-to-market plan before we have a product? Um, the other one is, is talent, right? Do we have an idea of what type of talent we need on this team to execute, right? To execute against our go-to-market plan and against our product vision. You know, I think, one of the hardest things you're starting out is like, you don't know anyone, right? Yeah. And I, I, my last company was not my first company. I did a bunch of stuff in like high school and college and uh, growing up in North Carolina, just super hard to find other people that were, you know, wanting to work on entrepreneurial stuff. And so this time around, I was very fortunate that like I, you know, could start with four really good engineers that I knew uh, and really good like salesperson that I knew and yada, yada. So I think kind of coming up, you know, I'm a product guy. I love product. That's what I wake up wanting to do. And so thinking about product comes pretty naturally. That's it's my default. I think what's changed this time is thinking about the other components, team and market and go to market and thinking about those, you know, at inception, not just once we built the product. Yeah. 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 I have an engineering degree too. So for me, um, I'm, and I love products. Like I'm, that's, that's just what I do. And, uh, it's funny because I came to the same realization I think you did. And maybe I said it a different way or I thought about it a different way, but I'm like, you know, this product stuff's kind of democratized. I could pretty much build anything. Mm-hmm. It's like half the battle. The other yeah. half the battle is, is anyone going to buy this thing? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and there are the, they're, they're the, uh, the, the carcasses of startups past that have not answered that question properly. <laughs> yep. So I think that's a very good way to put it. Um, so when, when you first started off with that, was it bootstrapped initially? I mean, how did, how did it go from, how'd you go from like user voice into this or was it like a natural extension or? Yeah. It's, so we kind of started it with, we had some of the insights at user voice. Yeah. That's we're kind of over the, I, I feel like at every company I have like, you know, through working there, like the insight for the next problem I want to go solve. Right. And user voice itself was came out of like, the company I was working on before that, right? The problems we had. And so, yeah. And so we're not, we weren't bootstrapped actually. So what was also different this time around is we raised a little bit of funding from day one. And so that allows us to do a very different way, right? My user voice, I basically, I think it was, you know, a little bit of angel money, but mostly friends and family and bootstrapping for the first year. Uh, 
And I think we raised 100K for the entire first year. And, you know, uh, I couch surfed and like, you know, didn't didn't have an apartment and all sorts of stuff. It was it was that like really gritty entrepreneurial story. This time it's a little bit different. This time it was like, okay, I've now built a company to, you know, almost double digit, just not quite, but double digit million dollar revenue. It's much easier than your known quantity to go out and raise funding from day one. And so this time around, we started with a team of five of us, right? And we started paying salaries from day one. And like, you know, we, we raised money to get the door. And then once we had a alpha, we raised a little more money. And once we had like a, you know, a working beta, we raised a little more money. And so, you know, honestly, constantly, you know, constantly raising money and, and growing the team and growing the product. So very different and probably not something, you know, I probably couldn't have done this the first time around, just I wasn't a known quantity, yeah. but this, oh, yeah. this time around you can. And so, Again, I think in the in the interest of speed running it, <laughs> it's certainly a good way to speed run it. Totally, yeah. I mean, I've I've found that as well. But it, I guess it also does depend on what you're doing. You know, I think that's also the thing that I always think is just the challenge of you know what what you're doing, why, and how it kind of how it works. You know, yeah. I think you've your 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 funding strategy and your financing strategy and your team building needs to fit the the product in the go to market too right um in our case we kind of looked at this and saw there's like a convergence of changes in the market right everyone going to zoom uh you know things like transcription becoming kind of ubiquitous like there's a couple technical shifts we saw that we we thought like there's a window to build this product and it's not super big window so if you're going to do it you need to go after it really fast um there's a lot of other startup ideas where that's not true right um I think Paul Graham and YC kind of call these like unfairly unpopular ideas, right? Like Airbnb, no one was no one was clamoring. There wasn't ten people trying to build Airbnb. Actually, everyone thought it was a stupid idea, and so that oh, gives yeah, you, including him, <laughs> including him, right? And so, like in that case, right, you want to go low and slow and just like you know be super scrappy to pr- because you're the only one that believes the thing's going to work, right? So. Like everything, you know, all of these things are, you know, is there one way to do thing? No, right. It depends on what you think you need to, you know, what the, the, the situation context of what you're building and for whom. Yeah, I think it's also, you know, it's this what you mentioned, like, is, is it adjacent? Is it something that no one believes in? I mean, those guys, which is a great example. There had been things like that for rentals. But right. not like here's a room in my house, right? And there was couch surfing, which Correct. was which yeah. like was completely free, and like you know there was no exchange of monetary exchange. So there are a few things, but it was you know when we people show people Fathom, talk about Fathom, people you know everyone's like, oh yeah, that makes sense, like that should exist, right? And so you know, uh, and as you'd expect, then a lot of other people have sprung up trying to do that sort of thing, right? Unlike yeah. the Airbnb thing, where I think <laughs> it took them many years before anyone tried to copy what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, there's a there is a couple in Europe, I think, but not mm-hmm. not a ton. I mean, the same thing with uh, Uber. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, who would have thought, right? Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's the reason why they started with black car, right? It's like, yep. oh, there's this black car market that's sort of underutilized. Why not? I mean, why wouldn't these guys want more? I'm just wondering. Well, Uber's such a funny story too, because yeah. I was I've been in San Francisco for 15 years, and when Uber started, and to understand the, the rise of Uber, you need to understand how much everyone in San Francisco hated the taxi cabs here. Like, I live, I live here, <laughs> hated. 
I hate mean, it, right? Like I still see a tax cab here and I will out of principle never get in that tax cab. I feel like I've been so abused by that industry that it just like, you know, I think people, when I talk to friends from New York, they don't get it because they never had this like crazy ta- like adversarial relationship with taxis. Yeah, the only cool one was Aero Cab, I think was the Aero mm. was the one where you actually, if you were, if you were cool enough, you got their other number. <laughs> oh, okay. That's the only one. Now, <laughs> I mean, honestly, they were really good, but then- they built like the flywheel app. I know I'm sure you've heard, yep, of, I've heard of that. Yep. Oh, anyway. Yeah. You, you, I'm sorry about Uber. Yeah. It's like no one thought, right? Yep. It's kind of interesting how that works. And and do you think, I mean, for what you're doing, it's really not regional, right? I mean, pretty much ubiquitous. And and I'm curious, do you have like international clients or how, how does, because you're doing transcription, AI transcription, I'm, I'm assuming, we're That's mostly tough. we're mostly focused on the U.S. I think I did a lot of international stuff early uh, with user voice, and I think you know where you, you see kind of B to C companies go international now pretty early and pretty easily, right? Especially starting from the U.S. B to B is a little bit harder, and uh, you know, one there's some technical limitations, right? They're just it's just you know, unfortunately, the state of tech is outside of unaccented English your quality falls off pretty dramatically for tra- things like transcription. So, um, and just, you know, as a small team, I think focus matters. And so like, we're we just don't have the, I don't have the bandwidth to be even supporting folks in like Australia super well, right. Or the UK just from time zone perspective. So we're focused on the U S for now. Uh, and we'll, we'll revisit the rest of it later. And, um, is it, is the, I mean, are you built on a core AI tech? I mean, is, you guys roll your own or I know there's a lot of like, what's it called? I think it's GPT three, I guess is. Yeah. We use, yeah, we use a mix of things. I, in some ways I kind of look at us like a systems integrator in that, you know, we're not inventing technology necessarily, right? Like, you know, there's so much great technology not being invented available on various cloud platforms. What we're really doing is pulling together all of these pieces to make a product that, you know, that automates all the stuff we want it to do, right? Post call data entry, the the in call capture, all the sort of fun stuff. And so it's fun. It's a, it's a it's a very you know it's a much more technical product than my last company, right? Like it it took us four engineers building it for senior engineers building it for a solid year to even just have to even like launch the thing, right? It's like and in some ways it's kind of fun and like gratifying because like you know it's. It's everyone's like, oh, it's so simple and it like works really well. And it's like, yeah, yeah, that took a lot of hours to get to that point. Um, but again, that's one of those things where like you got to map every like I don't think it would have been a good idea for me to do this as my first startup because of the the capital and human requirements to get to V1, right? And so uh, you know, unlike most SaaS companies, you know, where it's kind of like you just stand up some servers and you got a web app and like you're good to go, right? And your costs are pretty negligible. We've got, you know real costs and real tech and uh it's it's fun it's fun yeah and i mean i like i like your comment about integrating systems or system integration i remember uh when i used to work at a semiconductor company you know we'd sell chips to like logitech and cisco systems right and they i know i remember logitech used to tell us hey you know we're we're chefs we're we're not farmers Hmm. When we pull together the meal and it's beautiful meal, but we use only high quality components. And of course, Cypress Semiconductor, we were the farmers giving them USB chips, right? Which yep. I'm like, well, we're a farmer. Well, thanks for that, I guess. But I guess I'd rather be a farmer than a chef. I mean, whatever, right? But <laughs> but 
But the, the thing about, I think, today, especially in SaaS, is this whole system integration approach, there is so much tech out there. It really does come down to how do I pull these things together? Because chances are something somewhere exists that can do what you want to do. And I'm curious, like what, what, I mean, you don't have to tell me if you don't want it, but like what percentage is like we cooked it up in house as opposed to pull it together? I mean, especially with like open source and that sort of stuff. It's, it's really hard to say what that percentage is, right? Because all of these things, it, it's, <laughs> I want to maybe try to keep using your analogy, right? Like, yeah, in some ways we are chefs, right? And so, but it's unclear how much of it is like picking the right produce and how much like how you cook it, right? Uh, you know, good point. So, you know, a lot of the stuff, like if you pull it off the shelf and you just use it in a naive way, your your dinner's going to end up like the dinners I make, which are not very good, right? <laughs> like, so I, you know, I, there's, it, it's funny because like, yes, like the tech is all like becoming more commoditized, but you still have to figure out how to use it. And that usually takes a lot of trial and error, frankly, right? Um, because how do you adapt it for your use case sort of thing? So, that's, I think, you know, that's, it, it, I think where people can, it's, and in some ways you could build a trivial version of Fathom actually in a pretty short period of time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like you're just like, okay, I just want to like wire up something that just sends me a transcription and whatnot. But, you know, we were doing it like in real time with AI summarization, like automatically sending things to your Slack channels. Like we basically did a much harder version of it, right? Um, because we realized like the, naive trivial version that you probably could build in a month or two is not going to be what user like it's not gonna be good enough right and that's i think there's also this interesting concept of like mvp where everyone is obsessed with like what's the smallest thing i can build um and everyone kind of forgets about the viable part right or like i like i like the i like it calling like minimum desirable product right Ah, i like um you've got to find something that you know i i think for certain b2b products you, you're fine launching a crappy first version, iterate with some customers, et cetera. Um, but there are so many products out there now. I know. Right. And so I've kind of pivoted and thinking like, I think your first version, if you're going to launch and make a splash in first impression, needs to be really good. Right. Because if you launch something, it's kind of like, it kind of works. Right. It's, oh yeah. I see this all the time. So the engineers like, well, technically it can accomplish the job. Right. Well, but no one wants like, Technically, I get this done with jumping through 10 hoops, right? And you don't really get a second chance. Like, unless you're super successful, you don't get a second chance to make that first impression, right? Um, and, you yeah, know, people are like, hey, I saw it. It uh, wasn't that good. On to the next one, right? Yeah. And so that's why I think one thing's shifted a lot in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, especially SaaS. Like, I mean, you know, I always sort of look at the MarTech stack, you know, mm-hmm. all these marketing tools, like 8,000 marketing tools, probably now 10,000 marketing. I mean, it's, crazy. It's, it's ridiculous and crazy. And they're all like, you know, how to growth hack, how to do this, how to perform it, da, 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 da. And, and I, I look at that in two ways. And I'd love your thoughts on this because first way is clearly there is some challenges satisfying the MarTech market <laughs> <laughs> and or, you know, people are just, they don't know what to do or they're, this growth hack thing is like a challenge for them. Um, and then second, this must be a very hard thing to do because no one's really figured it out. I mean, you could talk about the Marketos and the HubSpots and the, you know, the hums of the world or whatever, but for whatever reason, there's like all these disparate things. And I'm just, 
Do you think that is because technology is so ubiquitous or maybe they didn't really do your minimum desirable product? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, you know, for the last 10, 15 years, the the cost of startup companies come down dramatically, right? So it's just like barrier entries are way lower. Um, You know, you've got folks, you know, this whole SaaS motion has kind of created a lot, like, you know, we, I think the first generation, a lot of SaaS tools were kind of adapted from the, like, you know, more perpetual license software. So you, you had a bunch of stuff and it actually, because it was the first one out there, got pretty far, right? Like, um, you know, Marketo was pretty big, but I remember using Marketo and being like, oh, this is not at all what I thought. Like, this is really basic compared to what I would assume coming from an engineering background. I assumed it was going to do, you know, from day one, like, automated lead scoring. It was going to tell me the right leads to look at and like, yeah. auto, it's going to do everything. It's going to be magical, right? Yeah. It wasn't magical at all. It was like basically just like a bunch of plumbing where you had to go in and do your stuff yourself. So yeah. I think there's like this friction where you got, it's never been easier to start companies. You got a lot of people inside this, you know, you've got the, the shape and the internal demands of companies have changed a lot. And then you've got all these people spinning out and be like, oh my gosh, I can make a better version of this. But they're all tend to be small. They're all little things, right? Biting at the the elephant, right? It's like, ah, I'm gonna make a better onboarding app, and I'm gonna make a better, you know, like email or like the. So just turn into like we we unpacked Marketo into a thousand different little companies. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, and I, what what becomes of them, I'm not sure. <laughs> they yeah. all do. I think they all do well enough. I think it's the one that one of the dangerous things entrepreneurship is like getting stuck in kind of like zombie land where you're like not. You don't have escape. You don't have enough like velocity to like get escape velocity, but you're also not crashing back into the earth. You're just kind of like gliding around, right? And uh, what what do you what do you think that is in terms of revenue? What's sort of your kind of? Yeah, it's probably like you know you get to like somewhere in the like one to one to five million range, and you kind of you you hit this plateau, right? Like you've exhausted. You know, I think sometimes you find that like a lot of these markets, if you don't think about ahead of time, you might. You might scratch your own itch, but then go find that there are people that have your itch and you can get it to a couple million dollars of people based, you know, that are have the own itch that you do, but then you run out of folks, right? Uh, or, you know, competitors swoop in and surpass you. So I think there's a lot of folks get stuck right around that one to five range. And um, yeah. Yeah. I always talk about the zero to one million is sort of the zero to hero. Mm. Like, you know, if you could get to a million in revenue on something, Okay, that, that's pretty hard. Generally, mm-hmm. that's pretty mm-hmm. hard. But I like the fact that like the 1 million to 5 million, once you're stuck in the 1 to 5 million, do you really have something that can grow? I mean, I like actually really like that kind of heuristic because a lot of times people, yeah, they, they scratch their own itch, but it's, okay, how many people are really going to be here? And to your point about distribution and marketing and go to market, I think that right now is is the key to success. I really think you have to really understand that. And I'm just curious, you know, you sort of switch your thinking on that after the first one. Mm-hmm. What sort of go-to-market strategies or how do you think about that with clearly I'm assuming this is more a B2B type of tool because it seems like a B2B tool. I mean, other people yep. can use it. I mean, you know, even, you know, an awesome podcast host with an awesome podcast show may even use it because <laughs> it probably would help. But I mean, and that's still kind of B2B, right? But mm-hmm. kind of walk me through that go-to-market motion. It's interesting. One of the things if you, when, we, when you go through Y Combinator, they tell you, it's like, what billion, multi-billion dollar companies go-to-market are you going to copy? Um, 
And, you know, it, because there aren't that many different go-to-market motions, right? And so if, you, if you're if you kind of inventing one that hasn't, that hasn't turned a billion-dollar company, there's a lot of, like, trepidation and in, in about whether that's the right path. Um, I think the the thing that, that a lot of folks make the mistake of is they go look at a large company and they go, okay, well, what are they doing for marketing? Like, let's go look at, you know, uh, you know, let's go look at, you know, Zendesk or something and say, like, oh, what are they doing for marketing? Well, they're doing everything, right? They're doing blogging. They're doing events. They're doing... Because they're a billion-dollar company. Because they're a billion-dollar company. They didn't start with that, right? And if you go talk to most VCs and most founders, you'll find that they generally start with one channel, right? Um, And so I think the the trick is to go figure out what's our one channel going to be that's going to get us, you know, escape velocity out of that one to $5 million trap, right? And... And then, yes, at some scale, you're going to do all the things because it just makes sense to, and you're going to try to squeeze out growth of everything. But like, what's the one channel? And so for us, it's actually interesting. We thought the one channel for us originally was just going to be word of mouth, um, which I actually think as a product person is one of the nice things about this era. Yes, there's a ton more products, but like word of mouth is amplified in a way that it didn't used to be, right? I think there was- 100%. You know, if you go back 30 years, word of mouth was was pretty killer. But then you had this this era of like, kind of mass media where word of mouth was dwarfed by, you know, basically we had low bandwidth, but like ads and marketing and whatnot, really like good marketing won the day because yeah, the madman era, I think. the madman era, right. Yeah. Up until really up until probably the, the 2010s. And now with social media, you've got kind of like, ah, oh, like we've got, it's like an arms race between like mass media and now word of mouth or social media. And now they've kind of like, you know, word of mouth is, is taken over again and again. With Fathom, there's kind of this natural word of mouth, right? You're going to use it on a call and be like, hey, I'm recording this. Oh, why are you recording this? Well, I'm using this new you know, AI note-taking app called Fathom. And then we see that kind of naturally people sign up that way. And that was how we originally planned to get started. And then we learned about this Zoom app marketplace being launched. And we kind of fought tooth and nail to like get involved in that program because new marketplaces like this don't come around very often. And when they do, you know, you, you don't usually have a way to get in front of millions of users, right? Uh, yeah, I mean that's a really good point. Like, I, I'm always of the opinion of this is why I try lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Being early is better than being good. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I mean you yeah. got to have a standard, but yeah, everything I've ever been in early where I was like moving the momentum, it didn't matter. Like by the time everyone caught up, I was already riding the wave. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's you know we had this. Yeah, I think solid theory about how we're going to do it just with word of mouth. And then the Zoom thing came out, we're like, we got to get on that. And we, you know, thankfully, the right the right cold emails and the right connections and whatnot, we were one of the 50 launch partners for it and quickly became the like number one app on it. Uh, and so, you know, and then we still have our word of mouth engine on the side, right? And so those two things, but now we had this great kind of cold start booster rocket with the Zoom ad marketplace. And so that's basically how we've been doing go to market. And, you know, we don't do, I think now our team does some like LinkedIn posts and Twitter posts, stuff like that, but we didn't do any of that stuff. I kind of told my team, it's like, we're not going to blog. We're not going to do social. Like we're going to stick to like the one thing we do really well, which is we're going to focus on onboarding folks from this marketplace. And we're going to work really hard on getting people to share us word of mouth. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's one of the errors that a lot of founders make, you know, they're like, they try to go too broad, too quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I know like, uh, there's this tool I use called Respana. I'm a big fan and full disclosure, I'm a guru of it or whatever they call me. Right. Nice. Cause I just love the tool. And I've known Farzad, the 
co-founder for like ever since he started. And one of his strategies was this single channel, okay, word of mouth, get people going. But he worked at a company called Visme. Visme is basically a Canva competitor for B2B, roughly. Okay. Right? And at Visme, the way they grew, their whole channel was content. They're like, we're going deep in content. We're not going to do anything else. And we're literally going to have people find us. And you look at their HREFs and you know, for Visme, it's just like a rocket, right? Like, oh, how'd you do that? And he's like, we just had great content. And then, you know, for Respana, they were like working on it, you know, beta for like a year or whatever. I don't remember how long. They're like, okay, time to turn on the content engine. And that's the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. ramp, but they just focused on that. They, you know, really didn't, don't do any other kind of channels. And then of course, word, word of mouth is an interesting one. And I, I like the way you brought that up because I think a lot of founders don't really understand or don't put a lot of faith in. If you have happy customers, they will tell their friends. I mean, I was in the PR, I still am in the PR and marketing space. I tell everyone I meet, oh, you want to do outreach? You have to buy Respana and I will introduce mm-hmm. you to Farsad <laughs> because it just works. It, yeah. it solves the massive problem with PR and marketing and outreach. The yeah. automation of that task is a pain in the ass, just full stop. You know, Cision and Muckrack and all those other ones only have a little tiny piece of it. They like they cracked it, right? And there's a couple other ones out there, but I'm like, yeah, word of mouth. That's yeah. Well, I, I hate, the other thing with word of mouth, though, is I think people kind of like that MVP comment I had. Like, don't you know? It's kind of like, oh, people seem to like this. Great. Let's get go get more people. As opposed to saying people seem to like this. How do we make them love it? Right. And. And I think, you know, I like that. I like, like, it's not people don't refer products. They like, they refer products they love. And so what is that? That's like, that's like partly the brand. It's like the product experience. It's also the customer experience. Right. I, the one thing that we've really invested in a lot is like really good customer care. Um, We've our, our customer care headcount is equal to our engineering headcount. We instrumented a ton of stuff like early on where, you know, we, I say we try to provide like, five figure support for free, right? Like usually free products, like you can't find anyone to talk to. They're hiding behind the knowledge base. Like, you know, you got to jump through 10 hoops to send in a support ticket and we find you, right? right? We will, we will, you know, make a thing. You can just send us a message anytime. We'll have a dedicated account rep for you. If you're just a single user, a single account, we will pay you to talk to us, right? Like after your first call, we'll, we'll pay you 20 bucks. If you jump on a call and tell us about your experience, Wow. Um, we wow. take, we have flags to find our best users. Um, and we invite them into a program where we send them swag, but also if they do a few extra things, we actually give them equity in the company. Um, wow. so we, we've almost built that as, you know, as much operational apparatus on the non-engineering side as we have on the engineering side to like really find a way to like, you know, how do we make these folks love us? Right. And be a product that they're super excited about and make them feel part of like an extension of our team. Because they are, right? They're the ones that are using it. They're the ones that are helping us build it, figure out what to build, what not to build. Um, and so I, I think it's it's shocking to me, though, that companies really underinvest in this. Like, you know, it shocks me too. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, Saster. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. heard of Jason, mm-hmm. Jason Lemkin. Yep. Right. Awesome I mean, stuff. I subscribe to his LinkedIn thing. I've never gone to the show, but the guy, I think pretty much every day sends out a note like, yep. you know, Really love his stuff, right? And he literally sent one out. I think this one was this. I'm looking at it right now. Was it yesterday? Maybe it was yesterday. 
Yeah, it was yesterday. And it literally, the title was customer success is a single digit higher. You're like, well, what does that mean? And literally he's like, you need to hire a customer success person when uh, you're under 10 people. Yeah. Like it has to be one of your under 10 hires. Yeah. And one of the reasons he says this was because of exactly what you said, second order revenue, right? Making fans that love you and just like, it's the thing now. And I agree with him hundred percent. I see this in all sorts of companies that, yeah, you can't find <laughs> someone. I used to you know, work with this company that was doing a, uh, it's called Sutro and they have a, a, a robot that tests your pool water, like floats in your pool. Right. Mm-hmm. And traditional SaaS kind of IOT, it's an IOT smart home thing. Well, their competitor, you could never find anyone. And this is a hardware product that takes time to set up. I mean, they just, just, this is not like free trial. This is like, screw the thing in, you know? And they realized, you know what? We need a phone number people can call. And you know when we need it? On the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> when people are figuring out their stupid, or on right. Friday or Sunday or whatever, right? So yep. I like that. So, wow. So you, how many customer care people do you have? Uh, now we have five, five. Wow. Um, I, I, I think it's also interesting too, because I think people like products, but people like humans more than they like products. Right. And so we can be like, Oh, there's this product. I really like it. And if I get to meet the humans behind the product and I like them too. Okay. Now I have like a real kind of like, you know, like we're emotional beings like i don't get emotional about someone's software i get emotional i'm like oh i get to meet the human behind this and that they're lovely too and like now i feel really positive things about this whole operation because i know the people behind it right and so i think that's super important i think i think it's probably one of the highest yield thing we've done is just like aggressively try to get people on a zoom call with us early in the in the process and just be like hey you know and again, we'll like literally pay you for it because we know it's such good outcomes for us. We know that you turn into a good user, you become an evangelist. So we just get some time to talk to you, get your feedback, you know, and we learn a lot from it too. So I think that's been one of the, the biggest hacks we've had so far. Interesting. And are, what are the metrics that you use? I mean, around that, do you do like, you know, the superhuman guy, um, mm-hmm. Raul, forgot his last name, but he had this product market fit survey, which I'm mm-hmm. a big fan of because- we use that at Sutro and I've used that at other places where we're trying to find signal that, Hey, we actually have something. Now these are the things we need to fix to your point about delighting customers, making them love you so that there's ballast. You know, you want to always want to build on success and then get it, it's, it's interesting. It's like getting rid of friction, right? Everyone says, Oh, you got to be frictionless. Yep. In some cases that's true, but then sometimes you actually add friction in depending on what it is. Right. This is what a lot of people don't understand about like, as, as an analogy, the government, the government is not about efficiency. It's about fairness. Yeah. And once you realize that, then you understand why there's friction in the process, right? <laughs> because yeah. their, the, their corner cases are like, you wouldn't even fathom like, Oh, we have to deal with these massive corner cases. Of course, Companies are a little different, but I, I, I'm just curious, like, what are the metrics you use to sort of, you know, customer success, satisfaction? How do you kind of use metrics to figure that out? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, for the, for the longest time, it was just kind of a, honestly, it was, it was pretty qualitative. It was, you know, how are, like, how are we doing? We have a channel on Slack called Boom. 
And every time someone says something nice, like it's a video clip from a call or email, we just put it in there. And honestly, it was just kind of like the volume of booms alone felt like a metric. More recently, we've obviously become a little more systematized about it, right? So we send out a survey after you hit a certain usage like uh, level. And we actually asked both questions. We're, we're asking the NPS question and we're asking uh, the Sean Ellis question, which is the, like, how disappointed would you be uh, if you couldn't use yes, the product? I love, I use both of those. Yeah. And so yeah. the two of those help us triangulate how we're doing. Um, and then frankly, I look as much at also the qualitative responses, right? So we take all the, like, how could it be better? We use this other kind of framework that this guy, Sean Kramer came up with at Atlassian called Rough where you basically analyze all your qualitative feedback and assign it like this is reliability related, usability related, or functionality related. And that gives you just a really high level, you know, uh, metric for like, you know, obviously if the most, most of your stuff is reliability related, you need to go work on bugs and reliability. If it's usability, da, da, da. And so that's also, I think about product. It's like, it needs to work first and foremost, and then needs to be usable secondly. And thirdly, it needs to be full featured, right? Most companies, I think, go the other direction. It's like, oh, we have all these features. They're kind of crappy to use and they're not super reliable, right? But you need to, the pyramid goes the other way, right? And so we are very aggressive about solving any reliability issue. Um, and then, you know, uh, similarly with, with usability, and then we add on functionality only once we feel like the existing functionality is highly reliable and highly usable. Um, so that's kind of the, the the workflow we use for all that stuff. And so, yeah, so you use the... NPS thing. And also the, I love the very disappointed question or the, mm-hmm. how disappointed would you be? And, you know, every time I show that to folks have never, you know, been in this world, they get all like upset. Well, how, why do you say it this way? Da, 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 da. Right. All, <laughs> well, there's a reason, right. And, yeah. and, and the psychology behind it is this loss aversion, which right. the signal is like 10 X, 10 X better than do you like us? You're like, of course, I mean, yeah, I like yeah. you, but like, yeah. If this went away, this would, you know, like if Respana right. went away, my life would suck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, that's the, that's the kind of thing I want. That's the signal. That's the, the massive signal. So cool. And then I've never heard of rough reliability, user, usability, usability function, feature, function, functionality, functionality. Yep. usability, functionality. So I think it's very part of the things like, you know, it takes actually a lot of effort to create operational processes to handle all this like qualitative stuff you get from users, right? Cause it comes from different. And this is my, my last whole company is built on this. Right. And so yeah. I have spent, spent 10 years working on this problem. So now I think we, we try to do it really well. And obviously we use user voice, my old company to, to do this stuff as well. So, but it, that's a, a part of customer care. It's like how many times people send out a survey or ask for your feedback and then it just goes into the ether and you're never here from it again. Right. And so it's still, blows people's minds when you're like that thing you told us about three months ago is now done or like we get, you know, fixed yes. or whatnot. Right. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's part of it, right? Like it was in the loop. You can, you can get pretty far with customer care just by showing up and answering questions promptly. But it's like, when you do that next level thing of like, Oh no, like we're actually going to hold ourselves accountable to like following up with the stuff you told us. Right. Cause yeah. most companies don't, especially unless they're like an enterprise company, right. For SMB or certainly a free product. That's kind of unheard of. Well, yeah, but even even the enterprise guys, they're <laughs> not. Structure. Yeah, that's true. Well, but because you know, and, and it's interesting because I think I think the differentiator in the world is going to be okay. Clearly, products democratize. Okay, so let's just take that off the table. Second, it's like go to market and getting you know the the real like distribution of the product. I mean, that's hard. Yep. The yep. Cost of distribution is way higher, right? Mm-hmm. But the customer service. How customer service and marketing and customer success and marketing tie together 
If you know how to do that well, I honestly think you're going to be way more successful than most. Mm-hmm. It just seems like the right one. Everything is saturated. The world's saturated with stuff. You have to stand out. And I can't really think of any other better way than to delight people so much that they are like, wow, we need to use blah. Or, yeah. yo, you need to talk to this guy, Richard. He knows what he's talking about. I mean, again, like it's funny, Farzad, you know, from Respana. I've referred so many people to him because I just love it. Yeah. That one day he sends me a note. He's like, maybe we should pay you for this. And I'm like, no, man, I don't, I don't need you. Like, well, we'll give you credits. Like, I don't need any. I got like billions of credits. I don't need any credits. It's like, well, but you know, you're helping us out. I go, yeah, but I love what you're doing. And hey, it helps. If it helps me help other people, that's great. And yeah, okay, yep. maybe when I'm giving you 100, you know, 100 leads a week, yeah. you could pay me for that. But I mean, I just want to be, I'm just think it's fun to be part of the ride. Like to your yeah. point, oh, I'm part of this. I feel, it feels good to be like, I'm part of some change in the world, you know? And that's why I think we've, you know, giving out small bits of equity in the company has been great because at some point it feels weird to get people Amazon gift cards because you're like, now I'm valuing your time. And if anything, it might feel like I'm undervaluing your time or like, it doesn't feel as good as it's being like, I want to do this because I just believe in this, right? But we want to give you something, right? And so I think that, you know, and we just do it as like advisory shares, right? And, yeah. you know, as a standard mechanic. And so most companies have two advisors, we have a couple hundred, right? And so it's just yeah. a different way of doing it. I really, I really like, that's a great, that's a great approach. I'm, I'm next company I start, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Go for it. I stole it from someone else. So, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, hey, Richard, it's just been so great chatting with you. I really appreciate the open, honest candor, like really fun to talk with you. I'm definitely going to go check out Fathom. <laughs> Please do. Let me know what you think. Yeah, I think it'll be really cool. And uh, thanks again. And uh, yeah, stay in touch. Sounds good. we Will do. Thanks so much, Richard, for being on the show. Right after we got off the phone, I actually downloaded Fathom <laughs> and started to use it. So uh, you, you got me. I'll let you know how it goes. Now, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from Richard. Richard emphasizes the importance of making a standout product. You never get a second chance to make a good first impression, he says. That doesn't mean he isn't always trying to improve and make the product even better. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit cliche, but I think it's true. I mean, you're going to evolve your product. I mean, that's just the way it works. You can never be perfect. You know, if you launch something that you're not like a little bit cringe about, you probably (laughs) launch too late. Um, But ask yourself the questions as he, you know, what is the first impression I want to make with my product? How can I really uh, be very thoughtful and forward thinking when, when people interact with it? I mean, that first impression does matter. So he is right on that. Richard wants to make people love, quote unquote, his product, not just like it. Quote, people don't refer products they like. They refer products they love. And yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the most powerful marketing channels in the world. This whole idea of referral, you know, advocates, right? So ask yourself questions like, how can I get my current customers to love my product so much that they'll tell their friends? How can you get them on the awesome Entrepreneur Ethos podcast to talk about it, right? I think... These are important questions. Now, don't get too bent out of shape because, again, you're going to be learning. You have to, you know, test and learn, test and learn, test and learn constantly. Uh, But if you're thoughtful and you're trying to put that 
face forward of, look, I'm building something that people need. It solves a real problem. People resonate with that. And even if you don't make a good first impression, well, you know, some people can give you a second chance. Fathom is an example of a company that makes customers care, customer care, sorry, an integral part of its business. This is key for making connections and building a loyal fan base. And I'm come around to this idea over the last couple of years of the power of customer service to be a not only an advocate for the customer and help your customers out, but also being a potential sales channel. And I know people have probably done this a lot in the past, but it really came to light when I was working at Sutro with Ravi, the importance of making sure people are taken care of when they buy your expensive product. And, you know, sometimes you can't get it perfect right away. Sometimes it's a bit of a challenge and the struggle is really real on that. But you can learn a lot from your customer service interactions. They're the front line, right? They're They're kind of the ones that give you the most raw feedback. So ask yourself questions like, what types of customer service should I provide? Do people actually want to be able to call me, you know, or call the company? How can I make it easier for people to onboard? How can I make them feel like they're taken care of? So there you have it. The actionable insights from my awesome interview with Richard. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.